0: Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep. Slow, quiet stories to help you fall asleep. This week I had a podcasting first. I was asked to tell a story on someone else's podcast. You might remember Zoe, who read Master Cornel's Secret as a bonus episode a few months back. She has a beautiful French accent, and the story was fantastic. Well, she has her own podcast, The Airing Cupboard, where she tells the extraordinary stories of ordinary people, and she asked me to tell a story for her, and then she took that story and turned it into something really beautiful. It's called The Cabin in the Woods. And you can find it on her podcast, The Airing Cupboard, at theairingcupboard.org or anywhere that pods are cast. This week, I also made some new friends on the Patreon. I had great messages back and forth with Ruth, Matt, Emily, Anne, and Marcy. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been so unexpectedly wonderful to hear from people about how the podcast affects them and just to get a little bit of information about what everyone's doing with their lives. I think maybe these days we all feel a little extra cooped up and this has been just a great way to get to know you better. So thank you so much. If you would like to support the podcast, You can do that at patreon.com slash listen to sleep for as little as $1 a month. And you'll get the podcast without any ads a day early and access to a bunch of other perks to help you sleep. I sure do appreciate all of you who are helping me live my dream of living in a cabin in the woods and getting to be a storyteller for a living. If you'd like what's available on the Patreon, but you can't afford it, don't worry about it. Just send me an email at eric at com, and I will send you an RSS link to get it all for free because I don't ever want anyone to have money get in the way of good sleep. Tonight's story is part two of Bartleby the Scrivener for Becky, a Patreon supporter. We're going to listen to the sound of crickets and a meditation on gratitude and letting go. I recorded these crickets at my cabin in late summer. Now, feel your body floating toward the void of sleep. Floating above your bed, above your home. Seeing your entire life from another point of view. What does your life look like from here? What do you see? Perhaps you notice that your problems seem very far away from here. And you begin to feel far removed from the little concerns of everyday life. Notice the aspects of your life that often go unnoticed. Taking in the big picture. Consider how everything works together perfectly. Your body, mind, and spirit working together, striving for a happy and fulfilled life you know that you can reach this fulfillment by accepting gratitude. Imagine waving your arms over your life now, wiping the slate clean, clearing away any grudges and stagnant areas. Take a deep breath in. and release (sighs) creating a new appreciation for everyone and everything in your life grateful for all the people who are part of your experiences and memories expressing appreciation for every aspect of this beautiful life appreciation for every breath in your lungs and every beat of your heart. And of course, grateful for this chance to rest. Simply drift off now, allowing your body and mind to go in any direction they would like to. Drifting over your life And playing the role of gentle observer, watching without judgment or negativity, simply observing with an open heart. Feel yourself drifting into sleep, letting go of any visuals in your mind's eye, releasing thought and allowing the mind to rest allowing your breath to flow easily, effortlessly. And if you fall asleep while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Bartleby the Scrivener A few days after this, Bartleby concluded four lengthy documents, being quadruplicates of a week's testimony taken before me in my High Court of Chancery. It became necessary to examine them. It was an important suit, and great accuracy was imperative. Having all things arranged, I called Turkey, Nippers, and Gingernut from the next room, meaning to place the four copies in the hands of my four clerks, while I should read from the original. Accordingly, Turkey, Nippers, and Gingernut had taken their seats in a row, each with his document in hand, when I called Bartleby to join this interesting group. "'Bartleby, quick, I am waiting.' I heard a slow scrape of his chair legs on the uncarpeted floor, and soon he appeared standing at the entrance of his hermitage. "'What is wanted?' said he mildly. "'The copies, the copies,' said I hurriedly. "'We are going to examine them. "'There.' and I held towards him the fourth quadruplicate. I would prefer not to, he said, and gently disappeared behind the screen. For a few moments, I was turned into a pillar of salt, standing at the head of my seated column of clerks. Recovering myself, I advanced toward the screen and demanded the reason for such extraordinary conduct. Why do you refuse? I would prefer not to. With any other man, I should have flown into outright dreadful passion, scorned all further words, and thrust him ignominiously from my presence. But there was something about Bartleby that not only strangely disarmed me, but in a wonderful manner touched and disconcerted me. I began to reason with him. These are your own copies we are about to examine. It is labor-saving to you because one examination will answer for your four papers. It is common usage. Every copyist is bound to help examine his copy. Is it not so? Will you not speak? Answer. I prefer not to, he replied in a flute-like tone. It seemed to me that while I had been addressing him, He carefully revolved every statement that I made, fully comprehended the meaning, could not gainsay the irresistible conclusions. But at the same time, some paramount consideration prevailed with him to reply as he did. You are decided then not to comply with my request a request made according to common usage and common sense? He briefly gave me to understand that on that point my judgment was sound. Yes, his decision was irreversible. It is not seldom the case that when a man is browbeaten in some unprecedented and violently unreasonable way, he begins to stagger in his own plainest faith. He begins, as it were, vaguely to surmise that, wonderful as it may be, all the justice and all the reason is on the other side. Accordingly, if any disinterested persons are present, he turns to them for some reinforcement for his own faltering mind. Turkey, said I, what do you think of this? Am I not right? With submission, sir, said Turkey, with his blandest tone. I think that you are. Nippers, said I, what do you think of it? I think I should kick him out of the office. The reader of Nice Perceptions will here perceive that, it being morning, Turkey's answer is couched in polite and tranquil terms. But Nipper's replies in ill-tempered ones. Or, to repeat a previous sentence, Nipper's ugly mood was on duty, and Turkey's off. Nut said I, willing to enlist the smallest suffrage in my behalf. What do you think of it? I think, sir, he's a little loony, replied Ginger Nut with a grin. You hear what they say, said I, turning towards the screen. Come forth and do your duty. But he vouchsafed no reply. I pondered a moment in sore perplexity. But once more business hurried me. I determined again to postpone the consideration of this dilemma to my future leisure. With a little trouble we made out to examine the papers without Bartleby, though at every page or two Turkey deferentially dropped his opinion that this proceeding was quite out of the common while Nippers, twitching in his chair with a dyspeptic nervousness, ground out between his set teeth occasional hissing maledictions against the stubborn oaf behind the screen. And for his, Nippers, part, this was the first and last time he would do another man's business without pay. Meanwhile, Bartleby sat in his hermitage, Oblivious to everything but his own peculiar business there. Some days passed, the scrivener being employed upon another lengthy work. His late remarkable conduct led me to regard his ways narrowly. I observed that he never went to dinner, indeed, that he never went anywhere. As yet, I had never of my personal knowledge known him to be outside of my office. He was a perpetual sentry in the corner. At about eleven o'clock, though, I noticed that Ginger Nut would advance toward the opening in Bartleby's screen, as if silently beckoned thither by a gesture invisible to me where I sat. The boy would then leave the office Jingling a few pence, and reappear with a handful of ginger nuts, which he delivered in the hermitage, receiving two of the cakes for his trouble. He lives, then, on ginger nuts, thought I. Never eats a dinner, properly speaking. He must be a vegetarian then. But no, He never eats even vegetables. He eats nothing but ginger nuts. My mind then ran on in reveries concerning the probable effects upon the human constitution of living entirely on ginger nuts. Ginger nuts are so called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar constituents, and the final flavoring one. Now, what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger, then, had no effect upon Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. Nothing so aggravates an earnest person as a passive resistance. If the individual so resisted be of a not-inhumane temper, and the resisting one perfectly harmless in his passivity, then, in the better moods of the former, he will endeavor charitably to construe to his imagination what proves impossible to be solved by his judgment. Even so, for the most part, I regarded Bartleby and his ways. Poor fellow. He means no mischief. It is plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary. He is useful to me. I can get along with him. If I turn him away, the chances are, He will fall in with some less indulgent employer, and then he will be rudely treated, and perhaps driven forth miserably to starve. Yes, here I can cheaply purchase a delicious self-approval. To befriend Bartleby, to humor him in his strange willfulness, will cost me little or nothing while I lay up in my soul what will eventually prove a sweet morsel for my conscience. But this mood was not invariable with me. The passiveness of Bartleby sometimes irritated me. I felt strangely goaded on to encounter him in new opposition, to elicit some angry spark from him answerable to my own. But indeed, I might as well have essayed to strike fire with my knuckles against a bit of Windsor soap. But one afternoon, the evil impulse in me mastered me, and the following little scene ensued. Bartleby, said I, when those papers are all copied, I will compare them with you. I would prefer not to. How? Surely you do not mean to persist in that mulish vagary. No answer. I threw open the folding doors nearby, and turning upon turkey and nippers, exclaimed in an excited manner, He says a second time he won't examine his papers. What do you think of it, Turkey? It was afternoon, be it remembered. Turkey sat glowing like a brass boiler, his bald head steaming, his hands reeling among his blotted papers. Think of it, roared Turkey. I think I'll just step behind his screen and black his eyes for him. So saying, Turkey rose to his feet and threw his arms into a pugilistic position. He was hurrying away to make good his promise when I detained him, alarmed at the effect of incautiously rousing Turkey's combativeness after dinner. Sit down, Turkey, said I, and hear what Nippers has to say. What do you think of it, Nippers? would I not be justified in immediately dismissing Bartleby? Excuse me, that is for you to decide, sir. I think his conduct quite unusual, and indeed unjust, as regards Turkey and myself. But it may only be a passing whim. Ah! exclaimed I. You have strangely changed your mind then. You speak very gently of him now. All beer, cried Turkey. Gentleness is effects of beer. Nippers and I dined together today. You see how gentle I am, sir? Shall I go and black his eyes? You refer to Bartleby, I suppose. No. Not today, turkey, I replied. Pray, put up your fists. I closed the doors and again advanced towards Bartleby. I felt additional incentives tempting me to my fate. I burned to be rebelled against again. I remembered that Bartleby never left the office. Bartleby, said I, Nut, is away. Just step round to the post office, won't you? It was but a three-minute walk. And see if there is anything for me. I would prefer not to. You will not. I prefer not. I staggered to my desk and sat there in a deep study. My blind inveteracy returned. Was there any other thing in which I could procure myself to be ignominiously repulsed by this lean, penniless white, my hired clerk? What added thing is there, perfectly reasonable, that he will be sure to refuse to do? Bartleby. No answer. Bartleby in a louder tone. No answer. Bartleby, I roared. Like a very ghost, agreeable to the laws of magical invocation, at the third summons, he appeared at the entrance of his hermitage. Go to the next room, and tell nippers to come to me. I prefer not to he respectfully and slowly said, and mildly disappeared. Very good, Bartleby, said I, in a quiet sort of serenely severe self-possessed tone, intimating the unalterable purpose of some terrible retribution very close at hand. At the moment, I half intended something of the kind, But upon the whole, as it was drawing towards my dinner hour, I thought it best to put on my hat and walk home for the day, suffering much from perplexity and distress of mind. Shall I acknowledge it? The conclusion of this whole business was that it soon became a fixed fact of my chambers, that a pale young scrivener, by the name of Bartleby, and a desk there that he copied for me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, one hundred words. But he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him, that duty being transferred to Turkey and Nippers, one of compliment doubtless to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby was never, on any account, to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort, and that even if entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to, in other words, that he would refuse point-blank. As days passed on, I became considerably reconciled to Bartleby. His steadiness, his freedom from all dissipation, his incessant industry, except when he chose to throw himself into a standing reverie behind his screen, his great stillness, his unalterableness of demeanor under all circumstances, made him a valuable acquisition. One prime thing was this. He was always there. First in the morning, continually through the day, and the last at night. I had a singular confidence in his honesty. I felt my most precious papers perfectly safe in his hands sometimes, to be sure, I could not, for the very soul of me, avoid falling into sudden spasmodic passions with him. For it was exceedingly difficult to bear in mind all the time those strange peculiarities, privileges, and unheard-of exemptions, forming the tacit stipulations on Bartleby's part under which he remained in my office. Now and then, in the eagerness of dispatching pressing business, I would inadvertently summon Bartleby, in a short, rapid tone, to put his finger, say, on the incipient tie of a bit of red tape with which I was about to compress some papers. Of course, from behind the screen, the usual answer. I prefer not to, was sure to come. And then how could a human creature with the common infirmities of our nature refrain from bitterly exclaiming upon such perverseness, such unreasonableness? However, every added repulse of this sort which I received only tended to lessen the probability of my repeating the inadvertence. Here it must be said that according to the custom of most legal gentlemen occupying chambers in densely populated law buildings, there were several keys to my door. One was kept by a woman residing in the attic, which person weekly scrubbed and daily swept and dusted my apartments. Another was kept by Turkey for convenience sake. The third I sometimes carried in my own pocket. The fourth I knew not who had. Now, one Sunday morning, I happened to go to Trinity Church to hear a celebrated preacher And finding myself rather early on the ground, I thought I would walk around to my chambers for a little while. Luckily, I had my key with me, but upon applying it to the lock, I found it resisted by something inserted from the inside. Quite surprised, I called out, when to my consternation, a key was turned from within. And thrusting his lean visage at me, and holding the door ajar, the apparition of Bartleby appeared, in his shirt-sleeves, and otherwise in a strangely tattered dishabille saying quietly that he was sorry, but he was deeply engaged just then, and preferred not admitting me at present.' In a brief word or two, he moreover added that perhaps I had better walk round the block two or three times, and by that time he would probably have concluded his affairs. Now, the utterly unsurmised appearance of Bartleby, tenanting my law chambers of a Sunday morning, with his cadaverously gentlemanly nonchalance, yet with all firm and self-possessed, had such a strange effect upon me that incontinently I slunk away from my own door and did as he desired, but not without sundry twinges of impotent rebellion against the mild effrontery of this unaccountable scrivener. Indeed, It was his wonderful mildness, chiefly, which not only disarmed me, but unmanned me, as it were. For I consider that one, for the time, is a sort of unmanned when he tranquilly permits his hired clerk to dictate to him and order him away from his own premises. Furthermore, I was full of uneasiness as to what Bartleby could possibly be doing in my office in his shirt-sleeves and in an otherwise dismantled condition on a Sunday morning. Was anything amiss going on? Nay, that was out of the question. It was not to be thought of for a moment that Bartleby was an immoral person. What could he be doing there? Copying? Nay, again, whatever might be his eccentricities, Bartleby was an eminently decorous person. He would be the last man to sit down to his desk in any state approaching to nudity. Besides, it was Sunday, and there was something about Bartleby that forbade the supposition that he would by any secular occupation violate the proprieties of the day. Nevertheless, my mind was not pacified and full of a restless curiosity. At last, I returned to the door. Without hindrance, I inserted my key, opened it, and entered. Bartleby was not to be seen. I looked round anxiously, peeped behind his screen, but it was very plain that he was gone. Upon more closely examining the place, I surmised that for an indefinite period, Bartleby must have ate, dressed, and slept in my office, and that too without plate, mirror, or bed. The cushioned seat of a rickety old sofa in one corner, bore the faint impress of a lean reclining form. Rolled away under his desk, I found a blanket. Under the empty grate, a blacking box and brush. On a chair, a tin basin, with soap and a ragged towel. In a newspaper, a few crumbs of ginger nuts and a morsel of cheese. Yes, thought I, it is evident enough that Bartleby has been making his home here, keeping bachelor's Hall all by himself. Immediately then, the thought came sweeping across me. What miserable friendlessness and loneliness are here revealed. His poverty is great, but his solitude, how horrible think of it. Of a Sunday, Wall Street is deserted as Petra, and every night of every day it is an emptiness. This building, too, which of weekdays hums with industry and life, at nightfall echoes with sheer vacancy, and all through Sunday is forlorn. And here, Bartleby makes his home, sole spectator of a solitude which he has seen all populous, a sort of innocent and transformed Marius brooding among the ruins of Carthage. For the first time in my life, a feeling of overpowering, stinging melancholy seized me. Before, I had never experienced aught but a not-unpleasing sadness. The bond of a common humanity now drew me irresistibly to gloom. A fraternal melancholy. For both I and Bartleby were sons of Adam. I remembered the bright silks and sparkling faces I had seen that day in gala trim swan-like sailing down the Mississippi of Broadway. And I contrasted with them the pallid copyist and thought to myself, Ah, happiness courts the light, so we deem the world is gay. But misery hides aloof, so we deem that misery there is none. These sad fancyings, Chimeras, doubtless, of a sick and silly brain, led on to other and more special thoughts concerning the eccentricities of Bartleby. pre of strange discoveries hovered round me. The Scrivener's pale form appeared to me laid out among uncaring strangers in its shivering, winding sheet. Suddenly... I was attracted by Bartleby's closed desk, the key in open sight left in the lock. I mean no mischief, seek the gratification of no heartless curiosity, though I, besides, the desk is mine, and its contents, too, so I will make bold to look within. Everything was methodically arranged the papers smoothly placed. The pigeonholes were deep, and removing the files of documents, I groped into their recesses. Presently, I felt something there and dragged it out. It was an old bandana handkerchief, heavy and knotted. I opened it and saw it was a savings bank. I now recalled all the quiet mysteries which I had noted in the man. I remembered that he never spoke but to answer, that though at intervals he had considerable time to himself, yet I had never seen him reading, no, not even a newspaper, that for long periods he would stand looking out at his pale window behind the screen, "'upon the dead brick wall. "'I was quite sure he never visited "'any refectory or eating-house, "'while his pale face clearly indicated "'that he never drank beer like turkey, "'or tea and coffee even, like other men, "'that he never went anywhere in particular "'that I could learn, "'never went out for a walk, "'unless indeed That was the case at present, that he had declined telling who he was or whence he came or whether he had any relatives in the world, that though so thin and pale, he never complained of ill health, and more than all, I remembered a certain unconscious air of pallid, how shall we call it? of pallid haughtiness, say, or rather an austere reserve about him, which had positively awed me into my tame compliance with his eccentricities, when I had feared to ask him to do the slightest incidental thing for me, even though I might know from his long-continued motionlessness that behind his screen— he must be standing in one of those dead-wall reveries of his. Revolving all these things, and coupling them with the recently discovered fact that he made my office his constant abiding place and home, and not forgetful of his morbid moodiness, revolving all these things, a prudential feeling began to steal over me. My first emotions had been those of pure melancholy and sincerest pity. But just in proportion as the forlornness of Bartleby grew and grew to my imagination, did that same melancholy merge into fear, that pity into repulsion. So true it is, and so terrible, too, that up To a certain point, the thought or sight of misery enlists our best affections, but in certain special cases, beyond that point, it does not. They err who would assert that invariably this is owing to the inherent selfishness of the human heart. It rather proceeds from a certain hopelessness of remedying excessive and organic ill. To a sensitive being, pity is not seldom pain, and when at last it is perceived that such pity cannot lead to effectual succor, common sense bids the soul rid of it. What I saw that morning persuaded me That the Scrivener was the victim of innate and incurable disorder. I might give alms to his body, but his body did not pain him. It was his soul that suffered, and his soul I could not reach. I did not accomplish the purpose of going to Trinity Church that morning. Somehow, The things I had seen disqualified me for the time from church-going. I walked homeward, thinking what I would do with Bartleby. Finally, I resolved upon this. I would put certain calm questions to him the next morning, touching his history, etc. And if he declined to answer them openly and unreservedly, and I supposed he would prefer not, then to give him a $20 bill, over and above whatever I might owe him, and tell him his services were no longer required, but that if in any other way I could assist him, I would be happy to do so, especially if he desired to return to his native place, wherever that might be. I would willingly help to defray the expenses. Moreover, if after reaching home, he found himself at any time in want of aid, a letter from him would be sure of a reply. Good night.